0: Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. Today I'm happy to bring you the audio version of my recent live stream chat with Dr. Jessica Lowe of the University of Virginia School of Law. Now longtime fans of the podcast will recognize Dr. Lowe's name. We recorded an earlier episode back in 2019. That feels like 300 years ago at this point as I record this short intro in late July 2020, and I'm sure you all know what I mean. Our live conversation gave us a chance to go much deeper into the horrid crime at the heart of her new book, Murder in the Shenandoah, Making Law Sovereign in Revolutionary Virginia, and what it means for our own modern struggle for justice and equality. And despite events of the past few months and recent weeks, Dr. Lowe gives us a reason to be hopeful in the end. Season 5 of Conversations at the Washington Library is coming soon. Until then, I hope you enjoy this program. Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted to see all of you here for our latest Washington Library Book Talk Tuesday. I'm Jim Ambusky of the Library's Center for Digital History. And in addition to serving as your host for this evening, I also host the podcast Conversations at the Washington Library. So check us out on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or uh, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Now, speaking of podcasts, Many of you out there may listen to true crime programs like My Favorite Murder or any uh, any number of other shows that reflect the powerful and often, and quite frankly, curious place that stories of violent crime hold in our popular culture. What they also reveal, and as events over the past several weeks continue to remind us, is that justice is administered unevenly in American society and indeed in many places around the world. Our struggle to form a more perfect union here in the United States is also a struggle to ensure equal justice under law. The quest, This quest has its origins in the formation of the United States, and Americans have been arguing about what it means to live in a republic of laws and not people since Americans rebelled against George III and British authority during the revolution. Tonight... We're going to explore a murder that forced Virginians and early Americans to deal with that problem in the years after American independence and one that can help us understand the equality of the law or the lack thereof in our own time. It is therefore my great pleasure to welcome to the program this evening, Dr. Jessica Lowe, who is a visiting scholar at the University of Virginia School of Law. She is a historian of of 18th and 19th century legal history, and she is the author of the book at the heart of tonight's discussion, Murder in the Shenandoah, Making Law Sovereign in Revolutionary Virginia. Jessica, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, Jessica, I'm excited to have you here tonight. And and, it, and having you here is actually kind of indicative of the strange world we live in now with the pandemic. Uh, we are both in Charlottesville, Virginia. We are about seven miles apart from each other. And mm-hmm. yet we were talking to each other about your book uh, through... Through StreamYard, our broadcast service. So, um, how are things going for you, and how have you been over the last few months?
1: Um, I've been okay. I think, like everybody else, I've been adjusting to this new reality we all have. And there are really hard and tragic things about it, and there are really great things about it. Um, and ironically, right, and one of the one of the good things is the ability to connect with more people across. Across space on things like we're doing tonight. So even in the midst of tragedy, uh, which this is, um, I've been grateful for the little things like more online reconnecting with old friends and um, and things like these great digital programs that you and many other places are putting out right now.
0: Well, we're so very pleased that you're able to join us tonight, and and you're absolutely right. This is this is a. As, as hard as this all is, it's a great opportunity for us to, you know, reach new audiences and share your work with other people and, and to help educate people who may be in quarantine or lockdown or, or can't get out right now. So we're, you know, we're very pleased to be able to do that. Uh, we're going to talk in just a second. I'm really excited to dive in. I do want to remind folks that we'll have some time for audience questions here in the second half of today's program. Uh, and by doing so, by asking a questions in our comments uh, via YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter, you actually have a chance to win a, a free copy of Jessica's book. Um, and so I hope uh, you do submit your questions. And And I've read this book several times. It's a terrific book, so I can vouch uh, for it. Um, and uh, wonderful news as well. Even if you don't win, uh, you can purchase a copy of Professor Lowe's book from Cambridge University Press by using the link that we'll drop in the comments. And even greater news, uh, we've got a discount code for you that will save you 20% on your order. So. Um, You know, to pick up a copy of of Jessica's book, if you get a chance, uh, I think it's well worth your time. Now, before we we start talking about a crime that really, um, in some ways, captivated a lot of Virginians in the 1790s, I wanted to start, actually, Jessica, by talking about your association with Mount Vernon, because years ago, you were actually a docent uh, at Mount Vernon. Is that right?
1: I was. uh, The summer of 1999, I was a docent um, at Mount Vernon. I had come to D.C. to do an internship with a think tank. Uh, Like so many other post-college students, I was about to head to law school and took the Mount Vernon job as something on the weekends that would help me pay some of my bills. Uh, I'd been a tour guide at Monticello as an undergrad and loved it. It was the best thing about my undergraduate experience. And so I thought, well, I know about Jefferson. Why not try Washington? (laughs) So I signed up at Mount Vernon and I had so much fun that I actually ditched the internship and and stayed at Mount Vernon full time for the summer, so uh, it was. It's a lot of really good memories from that. Well,
0: that's that's great to hear, and you know, hopefully, uh, we'll, we'll be better. Ha- be able to have you back out there uh, soon, and uh, and this time you you can uh, have somebody else lead the tour for you. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. My tour may just might just spontaneously pop out <laughs> just jump in
0: line and take yeah, over. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we we're here tonight, um, as we said at the top of the of the hour, to talk about a crime in Virginia, and what at first glance, it may appear to be an unexceptional murder that takes place, as I said, in Virginia, not many years after American independence. But as I think we'll talk about over the course of tonight's conversation, what took place during that event and the consequences afterwards really were important for how Americans began thinking or were thinking about issues like equality before the law, and and importantly, the meaning of the rule of law in this period. So I'd like to actually begin by asking you to tell us what the heck happened on July 4th, 1791 and uh, 15 years to the day after American independence.
1: So what the heck happened on July 4th, 1791 is pretty much the question everyone in my book is asking, right? <laughs> so um, if we start a uh, macro, what happened on July 4th, 1791, it's the, for all the astute mathematicians out there, It's the 15th anniversary of American independence. Um, It's this critical moment in American history where a lot is still to be determined. So this is just a few years after uh, the Constitutional Convention. Um, For all the Hamilton fans out there, if you're a Hamilton fan like me, um, you can think of this as the moment of those big cabinet battles uh, between Hamilton and Jefferson, where different, different um, visions of what the country could be are, are warring for who's going to get to determine the future of the nation. So this is a critical moment in the history of America. Um, but like all history, um, it's also an ordinary day. So um, on July 4th, 1791, um, a bunch of guys in Berkeley County, uh, Virginia, today Jefferson County, West Virginia, are in their fields and they're bringing in the harvest. And that is where uh, where the book starts. Um, so uh, these two groups of men are working. It's um, not a hot day. We think July 4th should be hot like it's been for all of us, <laughs> at least here in the D.C., Virginia area for the last few weeks. But um, it's actually a cool time. Um, enough uh, one-person one notes to render fires comfortable uh, gives you a sense. And so these guys are outside and they're working uh, two groups in two adjoining fields. Um, one field belongs to Thomas Campbell, who's an older landowner uh, who's been in the area for years. And the other belongs to a young man named John Crane, who's in his early twenties. Um, and it turns out is related to and connected to some of the more important Virginia families, including the Washington's appropriate uh, for today's uh, today's broadcast. So um, on July 4th, 1791, uh, Both of these landowners have uh, people there to help them, mainly local farmers who are pitching in, helping their neighbors for the harvest. Also, probably a few enslaved people, um, though not as many as you would find in other areas of Virginia. Um, So this is going to mainly involve local white farmers and laborers. Um, At some point during the day, something happens. And What happened is going to be one of the key questions of this case, but something happens and the workers in Campbell's field challenge John Crane and his men to a fight. Um, And they go back and forth over the day. They almost fight. They don't. They almost fight. They don't. And um, at the end of the day, John Crane ends up fighting with two of Campbell's workers, a local farmer named Isaac Merchant. Uh, and a local wagon driver named Abraham Van Horn. Uh, After Van Horn finally wrestles Crane to the ground, and it looks like he's won, Crane pulls out a knife and stabs Van Horn, Mm -hmm. uh, who cries, enough, my guts are cut out, and dies a few days later. Uh, Because knife wounds are not, you know, easy to treat in the 18th century, right? Um, Crane is charged with murder, And my book is the story of the unfolding of this case, Um, not only of the case itself, but also of its context, Um, this moment where people are trying to decide what does it mean to have equality before the law or in 18th century speak, um, what does it mean to have a Republican law, a Republican criminal law, uh, which for them, of course, doesn't mean a party like it means to us today, mm-hmm. but rather a system of government where the people are in charge. What is that going to look like? And criminal law is a really important site for that debate. And so the case is going to intertwine with that.
0: So I'm excited to explore a lot of these, these facets with you this evening. Uh, and what I thought we might do uh, first as we get going is, is just to ask, uh, you know what sparked your interest in this case? How did you come across it?
1: So um, I came across it doing doing dissertation research. Um, Like I think most graduate students, at least I know history graduate students, um, you get to that point where no matter how great you think you are, you're suddenly faced with the fact that you have to write a book. (laughs) You have no idea (laughs) how to do it. Um, And lucky for me, right around that time, um, I went to lunch with the late, great John Murren. Uh, an early Americanist who just recently passed away in this pandemic, actually, um, just a a little over a month ago. And he had just uh, become emeritus at Princeton, and he took uh, several of us early Americanists out for lunch. And during that lunch, he talked about how he had once read through the Maryland law reports. And I thought, wow, wow who knew that somebody could do that? And I want to try it. (laughs) So I ended up reading the first 20 or 30 years of Virginia's um, law reports. Now, there are are lots of manuscript cases from like lower courts, but Mm -hmm. these were the reports of things that made it to the upper tier of central courts that are published. And the same series of reports goes on today with Virginia court cases. So I just picked up the first couple volumes, basically, and started reading. And the Crane case jumped out at me. Um, the main reason was that the jury in John Crane's case could not decide whether he was guilty of murder or manslaughter. Um, and those were their two options. Um, manslaughter meant basically walking away and murder was a capital offense. And so what his jury had done was render a special verdict, is what lawyers call it, where you... Um, you uh, just outline the facts the jury mm-hmm. finds the facts and they um, and they leave the the legal decision to the court to apply the law to the facts and um, and so this verdict had gone to the um, to the one of the central Virginia courts and it ended up in the law reports and i um, I found it and I was just fascinated by it. One, as a lawyer, um, the fact that you would leave this kind of decision to the the court, whether somebody lives or dies, was just stunning to me. Um, And the the second part of it was the facts in this verdict were just amazing. They had basically found everything that happened on this day in this seemingly insignificant field in what's now uh, the Eastern Panhandle of West Virginia. And that's a real gift for a historian, especially of early America, as you know. Like, um, We're often limited to papers by Washington or Jefferson or people like that, which are amazing resources. But they give us the world through the eyes of those elites. And so getting at that rest of the world, what people's lives were like, how they experienced things around them is often really hard. And so when I saw this verdict, it gave me a window into this ordinary day that had turned extraordinary because of terrible violence. Um, and I was hooked, so I wanted to know who these people were, and I started researching, and that's how the how the book started.
0: Well, that's amazing, and it's amazing to me that, uh, you know, we, we think that you know, we're so accustomed to capital cases being decided uh, by juries and putting the fate of a person in the jury's hands, but then to have a jury say, you know what? we're good. Just, we're going to have the court decide this one. And I, I want to follow up on what you were talking about in terms of how people were experiencing this world that they're living in, in 1791. And we, your book has an amazing cast of characters and we'll talk more about them. You know, people like St. George Tucker and, and John Marshall in years before he becomes chief justice of the United States. But I actually want to focus for a moment on Catherine Crane, John Crane's wife. Uh, she's a, a really fascinating character in this story And she plays a key role in these events by by goading her husband to fight. And she does so by using a series of slurs, including a racial one, which obviously we're not going to utter here. And what she says, though, says a lot about the Crane family and how they imagine themselves in this early American world. And so what can you tell us about Catherine and why what she yells at her husband says so much about the Crane's place in Virginia society?
1: Yeah. So Catherine crane was in particular, one of the figures who drew me in, um, in a way she's a bit player in this. And on the, and if you look at the actual legal materials, which Mm -hmm. isn't surprising for a woman in, in the 18th century, but she also plays what, uh, you realize is a pivotal role as you, as you delve into it. So, uh, Catherine, uh, crane was originally Catherine Whiting Mm -hmm. and, um, The Whitings were one of the most powerful and richest families uh, in colonial Virginia. They're what historians sometimes call the council families. Um, They're the families who sat on Virginia's colonial council, had a lot of land, a lot of power. Um, She's also related to the Robinsons and one of her ancestors was the colonial treasurer in the 1760s and literally the most powerful John Robinson, the most powerful person uh, in Virginia. So, uh, When I first looked at the case, um, you know, I saw John Crane in the verdict. He's identified in the verdict as a yeoman, which we can talk about a little bit later. Um, And so I thought I had a picture of who these people were in this case. And I was excited about who I thought they were. I wanted to write a book about some middling farmers in Western Virginia. That's that's what I was interested in. Uh, But when I discovered that John Crane was married to a whiting, I thought, oh, this is something totally different. Um, Now, this is a moment in in history when a lot of these rich Eastern Virginia families are moving west for better land. Um, And both Catherine and her husband are part of that. Um, But the thing about this area of Virginia is that there's what in the 18th century people thought of as a lot of ethnic diversity. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of Germans, Dutch, there are English religious dissenters, a lot of Scots, Quakers. And as a result, there are a number of large farmers who aren't slaveholders or aren't large slaveholders. Um, And some of those own more land than John Crane does on July 4th, 1791. So um, you've got this volatile mix, um, particularly Campbell's Fields (laughs) versus John Crane. You've got a volatile mix of local farmers who are substantial landholders but not plantation people necessarily. And then you have the Cranes and their elk bringing this plantation culture into the West and that's what clashes in the field. So that's sort of the background on Catherine, but what does she do? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, there's this point in the case where these, these men are about to fight. They're at the fence between these two fields. And again, this is just slightly North of Winchester to give you all an idea what we're talking about. And there are these two groups of guys and they're about to fight. Um, they're going Oh, and I see we have a map here. This is great. <laughs> they're going um, back and forth, you know, almost fighting, not quite, not quite fighting. And as they're at the fence, Catherine Crane comes down, presumably to try to stop the fight. Um, and she does this by attempting to remind her husband that these guys are beneath him, that basically, according to the rules of honor, he doesn't have to fight. So she yells something. Uh, She says, Mr. Crane, I'm surprised you would demean yourself to fight with such a set of puppies. And not only does she say puppies, but she modifies that word with a racial slur, basically comparing these angry white farmers to the people she and her family own because they work in the fields. So this is terrible to us today uh, for all the obvious reasons. It's terrible to them um, for two reasons. One, uh, puppies is, as Joanne Freeman uh, has written about, is the nuclear insult of the 18th century. Yeah. Uh, if you want to start a fight, go call somebody a puppy and, and you're going to get your fight. Um, and then she adds, uh, Catherine Crane adds this terrible, terrible slur on top of that. And so if she was trying to stop the fight, Mm -hmm. what she actually does is the opposite. And at that moment, um, the workers in Campbell's field strip off their shirts and are ready to fight Crane. And they and Crane, two of them merchant uh, Isaac merchant, Abraham Van Horn and Crane go at each other. And that's the moment when this fight really takes off. And that's going to be one of the significant facts, partly because when you're trying to decide, is this murder or manslaughter, mm-hmm. you're asking questions. As, criminal law is a fun thing for America today, too, just like it was in the 18th century. So everybody out there knows this. But you're asking questions like, you know, was Crane planning this all day? Mm-hmm. Uh, did he go out there planning to stab Abraham Van Horn? Or was there some fight that that got everybody riled? And that's how it happened. And those are the types of questions you're looking at when you're deciding between murder and manslaughter and Catherine Crane's intervention is a moment where we could possibly say, no, this is, this is a new conflict, um, not just what happened earlier in the day. But yeah, it was, it was fascinating to me when I saw that and realized too that um, this elite woman from this powerful, slaveholding, rich family was really revealing what she thought about a lot of different things um, when she said this.
0: Well, it's fascinating to me because in that very moment you see uh, you have almost everything. You have issues of class, uh, you have issues of race. Uh, uh, you have uh, someone who is uh, who's later styled in the records as a yeoman farmer, but clearly isn't. Uh, he he's married into this very powerful and and what they might have called the ancient Virginia families, the first families of Virginia, um, and and it takes on this whole dynamic that you don't anticipate. As I think, as you said, you were expecting to write a book about a middling. A family, but in reality, this is a, this is a conflict, uh, on, on multiple levels.
1: And, and if, if, oh, sorry, if I could just add to that, um, it's confusing too a little bit because, yeah. you know, I've just described the scene and it doesn't sound like a scene that you see a family member of a big plantation dynasty from the East in. And so one of the conundrums for me was figuring out who are, you know, who are these people? How is it that Catherine Crane turns out to be married to John Crane, who owns 200 acres and is um, in the middle of Berkeley County um, when her family owns thousands and thousands in this area. And so you see some class slippage and you kind of wonder when you hear Catherine yelling this, is she also in her mind thinking, how did I get here? I mean, what are the different with, you know, women and their limited options. And, you know, what is, what is she thinking in that moment? Um, But yes, this is definitely a story about people falling in class. Um, For some others, it's about rising in class. And this is a moment where George Mason worries at the time of the constitutional convention that his fellow constitution drafters aren't realizing that anybody's uh, anybody can fall in status within a generation that we need to be making a constitution for everybody Um, not protecting uh, wealth or status or things like that. So like I said, there's a lot in flux and there's literally a lot in flux in that field too.
0: You're seeing it all play out right there. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's amazing. What do we know about Abraham Van Horn, the victim uh, of the stabbing?
1: So uh, I wish I knew more about some of these folks, right? Um, So Abraham Van Horn is um, a wagon driver. Uh, The newspaper reports that follow the movie, the murder are carried up and down uh, the coast. So there are a lot of reports and they're repeated over and over, but all of America is interested in this, in this murder. And those reports say um, that Van Horn was a wagon driver, that he had just returned from a journey Mm -hmm. um, that he, his, his horses were tired and that he let them loose after their journey. And one of the reports about what started the fight is that those horses broke into cranes fields and trampled his weed. And that Crane then maimed the horses in retaliation and that that is what gets this fight going. Now, that's not in any of the legal records. It's just in the newspapers and the newspapers are of varying reliability. There's a lot of sensationalism, so we can't say for sure that's what happened. Um, But Van Horn is is, uh, reported to be well-respected and um, I wish I, I wish I knew more. I know he serves on some juries in the Winchester uh, District Court, um, and and that's as much as that. His father owns owns a few lots in the town of Smithfield. That's as far as I, go, I was able to find.
0: Yeah, well, that makes sense. I mean, and uh, you know, but we do know ultimately that uh, he suffers a fatal wound in this fight. One of the central characters in this book and actually one of the, one of the giants of, of early Virginia and uh, of early Virginia law, who may not actually be a household name to a lot of people, but really is kind of central in shaping how a lot of people in this period are thinking about the law and thinking about these major questions we're talking about is a man named St. George Tucker. Uh, tell us about this gentleman.
1: So St. George Tucker is, I think, the most important but unknown member of the founding generation. Uh, He does have a, his house is part of Colonial Williamsburg. um, So you can see the St. George Tucker house, but it's closed to the public. It's um, one of the upper level donor um, perks is to get to go in the St. George Tucker house. Um, He um, is from from Bermuda. He comes to Virginia to study law with George Wythe and he becomes a law professor at William and Mary the first American um, editor of Blackstone, the first commentator on the Constitution. Uh, the Supreme Court uses him a lot these days mm-hmm. when they're looking for to explicate uh, the Constitution. And he's also, I think, just a really interesting guy. He's one of these uh, 18th century men of parts. He has many different, um, different uh, talents. Um, he writes fiction. He writes poetry, um, beautiful poetry. He also writes some body poetry which uh, when you're a legal historian is, is seeing some poetry as a nice addition in the archive to what you're looking at most of the time, which is pretty dry uh, uh, case reports. Um, so Tucker is just a really interesting person. He's a member of the Annapolis convention um, and he is the father of, and grandfather and great-grandfather of many generations of Virginia legal um, influencers. So uh, Tucker was the judge in this case and I had wanted to write about Tucker anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And then when I picked this case, I thought, well, this, this is just a great case. And lo and behold, it turned out that St. George Tucker was the judge. Um, the great thing about Tucker for a historian is he kept every piece of paper, I think, that he ever got, as did his descendants. I've had it on good authority that nothing left the house that ever came in, pretty much, which means um, that there are like 30,000 pieces of paper in his archive in, uh, at William & Mary, which was a, is a really great resource for anybody interested in um, Virginia and American history, uh, especially up till the Civil War. So yeah, St. George Tucker is a big part of the book. He's the judge, and, and we dip in and out of his story at several different places.
0: Mm-hmm. And there's also some other important people here too, and I just we just look at a couple other ones before we we move on to what happens in the case itself. But uh, General Daniel Morgan, mm-hmm. uh, he was the foreman on the jury, the grand jury, mm-hmm. the charge correct? Um, and then yes. uh, John Marshall, who is who is not the John Marshall quite yet in this point, but he does make a he does make a cameo appearance in this book in an important way.
1: Uh, so John Marshall was one of my last finds in this research. Um, I, uh, he represents Crane at the appeal, what's essentially the appeal stage. It's not really an appeal. Um, the jury renders, uh, we'll go through the whole timeline in a minute, but uh, the jury renders the special verdict and it goes to all of the, Vir- the Virginia District Court judges in bank, basically, and they uh, decide um, whether it's murder or manslaughter and um, John Marshall represents Crane at that stage. So those records are largely destroyed. Um, There's so many great records in Virginia, um, but the general court records are mostly what we have today for this period is drawn from St. George Tucker's actual, his own notes. And it just so happened that at Crane's, uh, this second stage of Crane's case, Tucker was on his second honeymoon. Um, He had just gotten remarried. And so he is not at this hearing. So we don't have much for it. So I only discovered that John Marshall was Crane's lawyer because uh, in the Marshall papers, Marshall charges Crane for the defense. And so I was, you know, you go through the index and search on the on beautiful online databases that we have now and there it is. He charges uh, John Crane um, for murder and then he writes the first pardon um, Petition on Crane's behalf for Crane's father to sign, um, but yeah. So John Marshall surely made a wonderful arguments at the at the uh, Virginia General Court. Uh, he was known as perhaps the best lawyer in Virginia in 1791. Um, but unfortunately, we don't know what they were, which is a one of the tragedies of of as a historian when you hit that kind of a block.
0: Well, it's amazing we have anything at all and I, i'm assuming that when you said that a lot of the district court records were destroyed uh, that was probably during the 1860s during the civil war when that happened you know. yeah yeah and folks folks out there may not know that you know in a lot of uh, a lot of places like virginia some we lost a lot of valuable uh, historical information as a consequence of the of the civil war
1: uh, so it's amazing how much remains
0: it's amazing I mean, it's a lot. yeah um you, we've already sort of talked about the, the scope of the case a little bit, but um, can you give us a sense of what happens? I mean, uh, he commit, uh, John Crane kills Abraham Van Horn. That doesn't seem to be much in a dispute, but it is highly contested. And as you say, there's a special verdict where the jury just says, we don't want to touch this. The judge has to deal with it. Why? I mean, why? You know, what's, the, what's the reasoning behind that?
1: So the the case goes through several stages. And a big part of my work was figuring out what the early Virginia court process even was, because it's not what we're used to today. So first, uh, the case went to the examining court, which was the local justices of the peace in Berkeley County. And they had to decide whether to send uh, Crane to state court um, for indictment and potentially trial or whether to let him go. Um, and this is one of these remnants from when the trials were all held in Williamsburg. And so the local county court would figure out, is this worth it? Like, is this worth sending jurors and witnesses and everybody, everybody to Williamsburg? So that's where it starts. Um, Then they say yes, uh, they charge him. And so it goes to the district court, which is a new court. Uh, Virginia has just established these trial courts that where judges travel on circuit around uh, the state and so this one's in Winchester, and that's where Tucker uh, is the judge. Um, interestingly, those usually had two judges presiding, um, which we're not used to at all today. Yeah. But one was sick, um, and when you're traveling all over, you know that's going to happen. So they they only had Tucker was the only judge there. Uh, there, Crane was indicted, and um, interestingly, as we sort of referenced earlier, in the jury's uh, in the grand jury's indictment, there's. Um, they have this long, you know, normal indictment like you would expect. Here's what we're finding, we're charging him with, and then there's this big blank, and then they've written in in much bigger script a word. So the blank is for Crane's class. In the uh, 18th century, they identified everybody according to their class. So, you know, George Washington Esquire is what it would have said, right? Um, so Crane is identified as John Crane Yeoman. And that's why at first I thought I was dealing with middling farmers uh, in Virginia. And then I realized, Oh, I'm really not. So what happened at the indictment stage is the grand jury couldn't decide what is this guy. So they left a blank and later somebody filled it in, which tells us that I wasn't the only person confounded uh, by Crane's class, but that this was being negotiated actually as part of the indictment. And I'm, so that was very interesting to me. Then he's tried um, and then his jury is sent away to deliberate. And this is a time where jurors are sequestered without food or drink. Yikes. So they nope. are away for two almost two days. And they um, finally, they can't agree. What do you do when you're hungry, you're thirsty, and you can't agree? And so what this jury finally did uh, is they rendered this special verdict where they said, these are the facts, <laughs> This is what we agree on. We don't, we can't agree on murder or manslaughter here, court, here, Judge Tucker, you decide you, you know, we're going to pass the buck to you. Um, And so Tucker passes it on uh, with the permission of the defendant to the general court, to all the judges assembled together, which is the defendant's right to have more than one judge decide this. Um, That general court meets in Richmond um, in the fall. I think it's November. They decide this is murder much to the shock of a lot of people in Berkeley County. And then three jurors actually write to the governor and say, we've met manslaughter. We don't agree that he's convicted of murder. Like, we didn't think that. Um, And at the same time, the Crane's start their own pardon campaign. And they ask for pardon on the basis of the fact that John has what they call lunatic fits. And this was one of the, one of these things about this case that also really drew me in is there are pages and pages in the calendar of Virginia state papers and the governor's papers uh, describing John's impairments, Mm -hmm. describing things people have witnessed. And they track this, what was called lunacy at the time, which you could bring up in a legal proceeding. There's not a a perfectly prescribed way to bring it up in Virginia in the 18th century. Usually it was during trial here. They waited till the pardon stage, which may have been a mistake. Um, But you have pages and pages of people describing these impairments. And even the jailer of the Winchester, um, the keeper of the Winchester jail where Crane is being held, writes in and says, I've seen this too. And so when you get to that stage, you start to wonder, um, you know, as I researched this, there were moments where I thought, oh, this Crane guy is just terrible. And then there are these other moments where you think, I don't know what justice actually is here. Um, and this was one of those was one of those moments. Um, so Crane is eventually he's not pardoned, which was a shock to me. I thought with all these people writing in, I mean, it was more pardons than I saw for any other case, more more pardon petitions than I saw for any other case in those files, uh, in those records. And he's not pardoned. And he's hanged about a year after the murder took place. And so, um, you know, it's one of those things where you wonder, is this, it's a triumph for the legal system in a way, because talk about equality before the law, like all those connections didn't save him. On the other hand, you get the feeling that um, he may not have been totally responsible for his actions. And this might be less a triumph than a tragedy. So it's, um, there's a lot of ambiguity throughout this case.
0: Well, And I want to pick up on on that question you just asked, what is justice? I think that's a fascinating one here in this context. And the subtitle of your book is Making Law Sovereign in Revolutionary Virginia. And so what, what do we mean by this? And, and why does this case matter in this context?
1: So, this is a is a critical moment, not just for all of uh, Virginia, not just for all of America in terms of, you know, the cabinet battles between Hamilton and Jefferson, but it's also a critical moment in criminal law. So, Enlightenment uh, philosophers really saw the criminal law as this key site where uh, the law met the person.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And one of the big questions Um, for this moment in history, is what does it mean to transition from the criminal law being from the sovereign, where it's the sovereign punishing, the sovereign pardoning, it's this enactment of the sovereign's power. What happens to criminal law when the criminal is a fellow citizen and you have a Republican government? How does that change things? What should criminal law look like? Everybody knows it shouldn't look like Britain because um, they have over 100 capital crimes and even uh, the great legal commentator, Sir William Blackstone, says that it's too much. And Blackstone thinks all English law is great. <laughs> and this yeah. is the one time where he's like, no, this is too much. This needs to be reformed. Um, it's even called the bloody code because it's it's um, there's just so much capital punishment in it. And that also raises not only cruelty issues, but the feeling of arbitrariness. Mm-hmm. When who gets executed, who gets pardoned, And so one of the things reformers want to do is to create this this regular, um, uh, less punitive, but more certain criminal law um, and eliminate the death penalty for most cases, things like that. So this is this important moment where a lot of people are talking about criminal law. Jefferson had proposed reforms Mm -hmm. with the Virginia revisals of the law um, in 1770s, 1780s. They failed by one vote in the mid-1780s. Not too long before Crane's case, so when John Crane comes before the courts, everybody knows this law is a mess; that it needs to change. that It's too punitive, and yet he—they're still using it. And so this is one of these other kind of liminal uh, spaces that we see uh, in this case.
0: So this is a, this is a concrete moment where we can literally see them trying to work out these problems in real time through this mm-hmm. case. And, and as the case reveals, it's completely messy, and American law is completely messy, and. Um you know, I love this question about, you know, that the Americans, you know, thought of George III as the fountain of justice, um, and sovereign and the sovereign dispensed justice. Well, as you rightly say, what happens is if the sovereign is sitting right next to you and, and you're on equal level, how does that actually work?
1: Mm-hmm. And the phrase that we, you know, many of us has heard is, no sovereign, have heard is no sovereign but the laws. Yeah. Um, or Thomas Paine said, in America, the law is king. Uh, So that's what they're trying to do, and especially in the 1770s, they're it's it's almost they're excited, like we have a chance to create the world anew is one of the things they say. And what does that mean? Well, it means making the law sovereign. Well, great. Well, what is what is that law? What is that? How is it different? And that's that's a key debate.
0: Precisely. Well, I've got one more question for you, Jessica, but I do want to remind the audience we're about to turn to your questions, so please submit them and, and do submit them for a chance to win a copy of Jessica's book. But my, my final question for you, Jessica, is, um, is in thinking about this case that took place in the 1790s and the ways that it sparked discussions about equality under the law and equal justice and the rule of law. And as we've just talked about, the law is a complete mess and Americans are excited but also, uh, and a lot of times frustrated, trying to figure out what it actually means to rule and govern themselves. How does this help us understand uh, something about our own modern struggle to ensure equality of justice and to create a republic of laws and not people?
1: So one thing I think this, this moment and their debates tell us is that we're not wrong, that this area is really important. I think people have this instinctual feeling. We see it on the news right now. We see it in America's constant, like, and historical fascination with crime dramas. I mean, and people were fascinated with crime stories in the early Republic, too. This has a long pedigree. But I think, especially with the, the kind of horrible stuff we've been seeing recently, a lot of people have this instinct, not only is this bad, there's something critical in this. And that is what this, the founding generation, that's what enlightened, the enlightenment theorists, this is what everybody thought is that this criminal sphere is sort of, um, the place where the real power is revealed. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I think that's the one thing that this really has to teach us. Um, the other thing I've been thinking a lot about is what this book was going to be, and then it didn't end up being. Um, but one thing I was really interested in when I started this was change over time. And, Uh, This story was so fascinating, I I stayed in this early republic period, Um, but I teach a class called Crime and Punishment in American History, Mm -hmm. and that's sort of the longer story, where this is just the beginning. And one of the things we look at especially is how uh, criminal law in America changes over time, and how it especially changes um, after the Civil War, once criminal law is no longer just a regime for controlling white people, Mm -hmm. but is instead a way to recreate the slave system, a system of racial control. And one of the things I found in my work that surprised me is that while my early American, American people are, these lawmakers are really interested in, in details of fairness and procedure and technicalities, they will turn over a conviction in a heartbeat, doesn't matter if, if it's gone through trial, yeah. <laughs> things that today that we'd be like, okay, that's, we'll just let that stand. They are just tiny typos and indictments. I mean, they are hyper vigilant to rights and freedom in the criminal realm. And that is going to go completely the other way after the civil war. And so it shows, um, and that's because of who, who, they're, who these systems are directed at in these two periods. And you can see really starkly how, uh, race when it enters into this, mm-hmm. um, how telling that is, and how the system changes. And we're 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 still living in the legacies of the post Civil War uh, racial control um, system today.
0: Sure, sure. Well, thank you very much uh, for our chat, and and now I'm I'm excited to bring the audience into the conversation and see what's on their mind. So um, the good folks behind the, the scenes will have some questions here, and Niles would like to know. Um, other than English common law, were there other schools of thought or traditions that influenced how this case was decided uh, and conducted?
1: That's an interesting question. Um, you know, this case was, in a way, what actually happened in the courts was pretty mundane, right? Like it's it's a, a two-day examining court hearing uh, where class is influencing a lot. It's not a school of thought. Um, but who knows who and... Are they gonna have to see John Crane's father again? You know, one of the justices of the peace collects his taxes. Crane's father has been the deputy sheriff. Um, He's friends with Charles Washington, George Washington's younger brother, who has founded a town in Charlestown uh, on his own land. And John Crane's dad is one of the trustees. So I think it's more concerns like that. Um, The English common law and the Virginia version of it, which isn't quite the English common law, but the Virginia common law version of the English common law is, um, is what they're applying. But these other factors really matter. And you see that in the pardon stage, too, where every petition mentions a visit from James Crane. Just about everyone being visited by James Crane, being called on by James Crane. And you can see the influence of these parents, which ultimately isn't successful. But I'd say relationships are a lot more important than any other school thought in this particular particular case.
0: Great. Well, thank you, Naz, very much. Uh, Excellent question. Cynthia Miller would like to know, in the 1790s, how were juries selected? Were they asked a series of questions as potential jurists are now and by different sides of the court?
1: Oh, that's a great question. So, um, juries both look very similar and very different. Uh, The jurors um, often know the parties. So, you're not going to strike a juror because they know John Crane because everybody knows John Crane. And in fact, um, one of the jurors in his trial was the county court clerk at the county stage. So the guy whose job it was to write down all the proceedings in the county court for this case then sat on the jury at the district court. And I, at first I thought, that can't be right. <laughs> yeah. That's the same name. Um, so this the idea we have today of, you're completely insulated from it. And then you come in to the case and you only get the information that you hear in the courtroom is very different. Um, that you can strike jurors. Um, I never got too deep into how I didn't have any evidence as to if someone was struck from the jury or not, there just wasn't anything preserved from that. So I didn't go into there, into that. One thing that did happen occasionally was they wouldn't have enough jurors. They wouldn't have enough uh, people. So they pull bystanders at court and so sometimes you see juries where um, they preferred very august people on their juries and so you see all these all these names like Daniel Morgan and then you see a couple other people and I would have trouble even finding them in the records so there was the statutory way it worked which it was supposed to be the richer landowner guys and then the actual way it worked which is we need a few more people can we pull somebody in
0: Well, that's a good example of how the law, you know, works. It's written in one way, but it doesn't always apply in reality in the other way. Well, thank you. Yeah, great question. uh, Patty would like to know, uh, Professor Law, how about or how long did these types of cases last back then?
1: So uh, Crane's case is just um, slightly over a year from beginning to end. But unlike a case we're used to today, that's not all in court um now today most cases aren't a year in court either but but um you do see the occasional celebrity trial that seems to go on and on and on right um so each the examining court and the county court was two days the district court trial i think was a day and then the jury was out for two i think that's right and then uh there was a wait to go to the appellate basically court to decide if it was murder or manslaughter. That would have been, I think, a single day hearing. We don't have the kinds of transcripts that you do today. I wish we did, <laughs> but instead there are just a few pieces of paper here, a few pieces of paper there, lawyers notes or letters, and you end up having to piece together. But Cranes, I should say too, Cranes' proceedings are longer than most. So two days in that examining court, it's the only case I ever found that it took two days and that's because of who he was. Most people, you know, you come in and they, you know, 30 minutes and they're done with you. An hour, they're done with you. Um, it's only his status that gives him even that much time.
0: So in a lot, most other instances, you really are getting a right to a speedy trial by being in and out in 30 minutes or so.
1: Yeah, yeah. which isn't, isn't necessarily great if it's a capital case, right?
0: Right, right, right. Well, great question. Thanks so much. Geraldine would like to know. Uh, Has there been other trials that jurors uh, hand over the facts to the judge? Was this common in Virginia, and did it happen in other states?
1: So that is a fabulous question. Um, So when I first saw this, they're all fabulous questions, I should say. Um, So when I first saw this, I thought, this is weird. (laughs) You know, I'm a lawyer, and I thought, there's no way this happens all the time. Uh, So what I found was that there were a lot of special verdicts in Virginia, especially. They're used other places, too. There's a long, long history of special verdicts in English law. Um, Juries used to use them as a way to avoid giving a verdict because there was a time where if the jury seemed to give the wrong verdict, the jurors could be prosecuted. So juries would do this. So they'd say, hey, here's the facts. We're going to let you figure out the law. So there's a struggle between jury and judge um, in English history. So uh, even in Blackstone's commentary on the law, when he talks about special verdicts, he uses murder and manslaughter as an example of a time where you would see a special verdict. And I was, I was as a 20th, 20th and 21st century lawyer, I was really surprised by that. However, after the American Revolution, they are under fire because it is a lot of power to give to a judge. So Virginia, as a, as a state, jurors tend to render these kinds of verdicts. And I think it's the explanation Judge Tucker gives is it's because the parties don't trust the juries, but they trust the judges more. <laughs> and so the parties actually prefer it to having a jury. Um apply the law. They'd rather just have the jury find the facts. But yeah, it's a great question. And even today, um, there's talk about the extent to which we should use special verdicts in modern criminal law. They are still in use in civil cases a lot. When I was a clerk, we had some special verdicts. Um, Sometimes um, some criminal findings look a little bit like this, but there's there's some work on whether this would be a good thing if it makes jurors think more about, about what they're rendering and if it makes the outcome more just and more accurate.
0: If I could ask a follow-up for just a moment, I I was curious earlier that the the juries in the 18th century were not fed or or given water. Was that, was that a a way to try to compel them to work faster and reach render a verdict as expeditiously as possible?
1: Yeah. So the exact extent of their deprivation can vary. Mm -hmm. So um, they're definitely not fed. Sometimes they're not given water. Sometimes maybe they're just not given, you know, spirits, uh, so you can't have your whiskey <laughs> while you're not, right, but um, but without meat or drink is the is the traditional phrase. And yeah, I think one of the reasons was to just make them agree, like yep. get a verdict and and move it along. Wow, I'm sure there are people who've done more in depth work on on the origins of that because that's that's very old as well. That's also a carryover from English yeah, procedure.
0: I was going to wonder if that was a uh, goes back into the into the legal history.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah,
0: yeah. Well, let's see what else we've got going. On. Adam, hello, Adam. What sort of media coverage was there during and after the trial? Great question.
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of media coverage. Uh, this story um, comes out in several segments, and you see sort of a new report that's got slightly different facts um, at different points over the summer of 1791, and I started to peg those being slightly after different court proceedings. Even some like a, some court proceedings I don't have records for, there would be a newspaper report a couple of days later and I could guess, I bet that information came out in the inquest, the coroner's inquest, uh, for instance. So then those stories would be repeated in newspapers around the country. Um, 18th century newspapers loved crime and they also you know, couldn't send reporters places. So they would pick up a story and it would be reprinted verbatim over and over. So the Crane story is one of the most... Um, one of the most repeated stories, um, at least in, you know, 1791, 1792 that I saw.
0: So people are definitely paying attention to it (laughs) in that period. Yeah. Thank you very much, Adam. Scarlett would like to know what was the most bizarre or surprising aspect of this case that you found while researching?
1: Oh boy, um, I feel like this case surprised me at every turn and that's how I got hooked. But I think uh, the most exciting finding for me was um, after I had sort of pieced together a little bit of what happened time-wise in the case, I wanted to know if these people knew each other. Like how did these people know each other? Again, we're working with just, here I'm working with just tiny pieces of paper, a little bit here, a little bit there. Part of a part of a record, part of a letter, a tax document. Um, so I decided to trace out land grants and see where these people lived in relation to each other. I knew that uh, Charles Washington had founded this town, Charlestown, on his land. I knew James Crane was a trustee. I knew some of the other people in the case were trustees. Um, so I got my little notes and I walked to the streets of Charlestown, West Virginia. And I discovered that um, I, I discovered what I thought was the Crane house. I'm not sure if it's the same house. I think it is, but it's still a private residence. And then right down the street was the house of one of the pardon petitioners, Dr. Edward Tiffin, who becomes the first governor of Ohio, but is the, uh, a Crane friend and writes one of the petitions documenting the lunatic, lunatic fits, as they called it. Um, and then you know, I kept walking, and lo and behold, Across the street from the Crane's house was the house of one of the jurors who later writes to the governor and says, "I think this was only manslaughter." So one of Crane's jurors literally lived across the street from John Crane's parents in Charlestown. So that gives you a sense to go back also to the to the jury question of what this is is like. I mean, you talk about jury of your peers. I mean, this was really a jury of your neighbors. And then you also ask yourself questions like when this, when this juror wrote to the governor and said, I don't think this was murder. I think it was just manslaughter. Is he doing that because he's going to have to look at the cranes or is he doing that because he, he knows that this isn't going to get pardoned. And so it's no cost to him to write this. Probably not. These people took these things pretty seriously, Mm -hmm. but you begin to see how these relationships play out, I mean, just across a narrow street, and you're sitting in judgment in somebody's trial.
0: That's amazing. It's just, it's just a reminder of how, even though some historians are, you know, we often describe the past as a foreign country, uh, it, it was very real for them and a very intimate space for them, as that, that it really shows. Uh, I think we have time for uh, one or two more questions before we close out this evening. Adam would like to know, of the two groups of men who were ready to fight, is there any indication that there was a largely there was largely a group divided by financial status, or were they aligned over different maybe local issues?
1: So this is a really great question to you. Um, so what I could determine uh, is that it seems like Crane is the outlier. So you know, the the verdict and the records don't mention every single name of the people who were in the fields. They mention the ones who do things that impact the fight and show up in the verdict. I managed to figure out that Isaac Merchant um, was uh, the son of a local uh, Quaker who had left the meeting, and um, for complicated reasons, they had lost a lot of their land, and Isaac was a younger son, and he was in the process of buying back land And you can see him in the records each year. He's buying more, buying more, buying more. Mm -hmm. And by the time of the case, he owns more than John Crane. Yet he's working in his in Thomas Campbell's fields to help out because this is what you do at the harvest. Um, So even though Crane is the Eastern Virginia patrician in that moment, You know, he he has a lot less land than Isaac Merchant, who's working across the fence, which also puts Catherine Crane's terrible comment in some perspective, too. Um, One of Crane's, uh, the guy, one of the farmers helping Crane's, a guy named John Dawkins, who's Crane's neighbor, he's lived in the area for years. Uh, He's been security on uh, Isaac Merchant's father's will when when Isaac Merchant's father dies, when Isaac is like 13. So you can trace that these people all know each other, but that's how you have to do it, which took a lot of time. Um, So yeah, I think the main issue here was probably those horses, but unfortunately that doesn't show up in the court record enough for me to be sure about that. Um, But the class or the regional or whatever divide you wanna call it is really uh, John and Catherine Crane who find themselves in this world that they're not entirely used to. And even though it's only a few steps probably from where they've both been living with their parents um, before this. So, um, yeah, that's a great question.
0: Well, Adam, thank you very much. And I think we have time for one more and Scarlett's back again. Uh, What would you consider to be the key takeaways for this trial for us today? What are some of the biggest lessons learned?
1: Um. hmm. That's a great question. So key takeaways for us today, I wish we would think more about criminal law in the sense of justice and politics and um, macro sense that they were trying to think of it then. Um, As I read a lot of the the documents about the Virginia revisal, um, the law reform that's passed shortly after uh, Crane is executed. Um, they do finally pass law reform and um, they create second-degree murder. So that would have given a whole other option for Crane between manslaughter and murder. Um, it's not capital. Um, but there's so much discussion and it's it's very intentional discussion about what does it mean to do justice? Um, what does it mean to treat people with humanity and uh, like their fellow citizens? I mean, there are a lot of problems I'm not, I'm not trying to <laughs> gloss over the huge problems in each one of those definitions or the hypocrisy or any of that, but I wish um, we could have a deliberative discussion about what it means to punish, what is the purpose of crime, um, and what does it mean to do justice for everybody involved in something like this. And you see them trying, other issues start to arise, and criminal punishment does become, does remain an issue. Uh, but the early Republic especially is is a moment where they're really thinking about it. And, and the other thing about history in general, I think, and this type of history in particular, in particular is it, I think it always reminds us um, both to be humble, but to have hope. So one of the reforms that comes out um, after Crane's execution is the invention of the penitentiary, um, the first real penitentiary where they're confining people and they're hoping to rehabilitate them, but they do it in this incredibly brutal way. It's like it's different in New York and in Pennsylvania. There are different systems. Virginia creates a hybrid system. Some they make you work. Some they put you in isolation. But they're all awful. And yet these reformers think they're doing this amazing thing. I mean, these are these are humanitarian reformers doing terrible things to people. And so um, when I say I wish we would think about this more. Uh, in the way they did, I love it that they're asking these questions. I think they're—I think they're right that this is the point where power meets the person. But it also reminds us of how wrong we can go. Um, and so this is why I love history and why I think it's so important. Is it's both gives us hope that that there are things that can be changed and and things don't have to look the way they look. And it also I think should make us humble that people make a whole lot of mistakes. Um, yeah, that's a great question. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great place to end it on hope and humility. And so, Jessica, thank you very much for sharing your your work with us this evening. Really appreciate you taking the time to be with us tonight.
1: Thank you so much for having me, and thanks everybody for joining us.
0: Yeah, it's been been a, a great uh, pleasure, and thanks to the audience out there. Thanks for your terrific questions and for your time uh, and your willingness to uh, share your evening with us. Uh, and and for those of you out on replay land, uh, we look forward to seeing you there as well i I just want to thank uh our team behind the scenes tonight Uh, as always jeanette patrick samantha snyder and jamie morris uh running the images moderating questions doing a a great job as usual and uh, we can't do any of these things without them so thank you very much uh for folks there i do want to give uh uh, you out there a a little bit of a programming heads up next week on july 28th at 2 p.m eastern in the united states and at 7 p.m in the united kingdom We'll welcome Dr. Laura Sandy of the University of Liverpool, uh, who will join us for a discussion of her new book, The Overseers of Early American Slavery, Supervisors and Slave Laborers and the Plantation Enterprise. This is our first joint production uh, uh, in collaboration with the Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello. So we're really excited to partner with our friends uh, just down the street, actually, from uh, from where I am and uh, just down the hill from where Jessica is right now. And then uh, finally, on August the ter- 13th at 7 p.m., we will welcome Dr. Stephanie Jones-Rogers of the University of California, Berkeley, for a conversation about her prize-winning book, They Were Her Property, White Women as Slave Owners in the American South. Uh, Those will both be excellent conversations, and I'm sure we'll pick up on some of the themes we've talked about here tonight. You can find more information about both of these programs and watch all of our, our past shows by going to mountainvernon.org gw digital talks and i hope you'll join us for both these programs and much more so again jessica thanks so much uh, we really appreciate your time and to, to you all out there out there thanks gang we appreciate uh, uh you welcoming us into your homes each evening or not each evening but every tuesday uh, mm-hmm. and uh, we look forward to seeing you again soon so good night and good luck thanks for listening to conversations a production of the fred w smith national library for the study of george washington This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, you may do so by making a contribution to Mount Vernon. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.